0: So, good evening. At this stage of the retreat, we like to congratulate you for having successfully completed your first 24 hours of silent meditation retreat. The the the, the result, the The success of the result is dependent on the fact that you're still here. This is a good thing. You do most of the hard work by just being here and staying and showing up for whatever life wants to cook up for you, right? Sometimes on a retreat, we hear a lot of comments because the beginning part of a retreat or the arrival and the, the, uh, the clashing of our lives and our busyness with the stillness and tranquility of the retreat can often create a lot of friction, a lot of uh, upheaval and whatever glorious, blissful, wonderful expectations that you had. When we picture, oh, I'm going away on a weekend meditation retreat in the country. (laughs) We have certain expectations about that, right? Oh, it's gonna be quiet and blissful, and I'll be super happy, and no one's bothering me, and I'll just be really at peace with everything. And then you get here. (laughs) (laughs) And maybe that's true for some of you, maybe it's very peaceful for some of you. But uh, I know having listened to some of the questions and talked to some of you and that there's a lot more going on than just the outer tranquility of the pastoral landscape of spirit rock. It's more like the storm that just blew in, yeah? You there the and it's like, oh, it's getting all peaceful, that bad weather went, and it's going to be all sunshine, and <laughs> and then this howling rainstorm comes in. Where did that come from? And that's what it's like, it's like a meditation. We sit quietly and just minding our own business, following our breath, and then suddenly some big drama emerges. Some memory from kindergarten that was traumatic. <laughs> or something somebody said to us at the high school prom, or on our wedding day, or something, and a whole thing emerges. And that passes, and we're back to the breath. And then the next thing comes along. You know, Maybe our, fo- our foot feels like it's gonna drop off, or our head's gonna drop off with boredom, or nodding too much, you're wondering if it's th- sufficiently attached at the back, so it's going to stay on. So I want to speak to a little about your experience here and what we're doing here and the context of the practice, the context of mindfulness. And to some degree to where this practice goes, where it leads, there's only so much I can say, there's a lot to say. Uh, about this practice, about mindfulness, about the path, about Buddhist teaching, about meditation. I only have 45 minutes or so. So um, I'll just be pointing to different pieces that I think are relevant. So I know one thing that arises for people when they are here, um, some people it's blessed relief, other people it's, Oh my God, what did I sign up for? <laughs> this is not what I expected. So one woman said once at the beginning of retreat, she part oh the, the pardon the retreat, she said, I'd rather be at the spa sipping wine in Napa with a glass of Chardonnay, but I'm here. <laughs> What's up with that? <laughs> another person said, I'd rather be at work. (laughs) At least I'm doing something productive. Feels like I'm just sitting looking at my navel all day. What's up with that? So many, many kinds of thoughts can come through. And I'll talk a little more about that kind of mind state that, that, that particularly plagues us in meditation. What's hard to see in, in the minutiae of experience here is how, it, is how it relates to the bigger picture and how it transforms us. Because we do get lost in the minutia of our breath and our bodies and our reactivities and things. And r- with practice it's useful to take a long range view and that's why I asked you to, to, to suspend the evaluating mind. I said till Sunday, but really, you know, maybe till 2019, and just do the practice for a while. And the Dalai Lama said when, when people ask him about how, did, how, did, how should they check up on their practice, he says, well, just do it, you know, get the instructions, do what your teacher says. And then about 10 years, you know, take a look and see if it's having any effect. So you have your instructions for the next 10 years, Be mindful, pay attention, see what happens. So I have the good fortune of of having done this practice a long time and worked with people over long periods of time to see that it does transform lives radically. I was teaching, I do teach a course down the hill at the community hall, uh, it's a class called Essential Dharma. And it's a class that happens over, basically over a year. And uh, one woman came and she told me later her story. She said, I came because I was desperate, as we often are when we show up to places like this. And uh, she said, I was about to get fired at work because I was getting such bad performances, performance reviews. Everybody was so, having such a hard time with me that they wanted to fire me. So I thought, well, I better sort myself out. She came to this course in meditation and Buddhist teaching, and it's three 10-week semesters, so after the first 10-week semester, she, um, people kept asking her, they were saying, what's happened to you? What are you you doing? It's, you're you're a completely different person. What's shifted? And I'm not sure whether she said what she was doing or not, but, and after the year, she started getting really glowing performance reviews. And people started to really enjoy being around her and wanting to work with her. And this was just from attending a class once a week and doing the practice of mindfulness every day and bringing it into her life. And what happens is, as we cultivate mindfulness, as we cultivate awareness, It doesn't just stay, we don't just become really good breath meditators. We don't just become experts in the breath, if that's what we choose to be mindful of for our practice. What we're doing is we're growing the muscle of of awareness, growing the capacity for awareness. And that awareness begins to ripple and extend and affect every aspect of our lives. It just does then because nothing is separate, and because awareness affects and is related to everything, then things start transforming. So if you're wondering what you're doing here, paying attention to your breath, and following your footsteps while the earth is burning up in fire, this has very much everything to do with that. Because we are the earth, we are the world, and how we are in relationship with this moment, and this body, and this life, and this breath, and this step, and this person, is the metaphor for how we are in our lives. The practice has to start here. For there to be real transformation. This is really the primary place we can create transformation in the world. So I saw this for myself. I started practice. I had the good fortune of starting to practice when I was uh, in my late teens. And um, that was about five, six years ago. And uh, (laughs) and, uh, I was was a pretty angry young man. I was a punk rocker anarchist. I squatted houses. I took part in a lot of anti-government it's kind of like the, the first wave of Occupy, it wasn't called Occupy, it was called Stop the City. And, um, but I also was very angry with myself and uh, a lot of negative self-judgment and, and, and blame and all of that. I'm really confused and wanting, wanting some, some, solve, some way out of just being in a turmoil. I, I read my journals and I was like, wow, I was really in anguish. And um, I stumbled across this Buddhist uh, retreat, this uh, center, and started meditating. And very quickly began to see that the cause of my own distress was mostly in here. I was doing a lot of blame and rage about the machine out there, but I wasn't noticing my own stuff, the, the, way, that I, the way that my mind looked, for the negative, looked for the problem, looked for, um, had a very askewed perspective on life. And um, pretty soon that, that just transformed, it just turned around. And I started to do the practice of metta, which you which you learned today, to bring kindness to ourselves and others. And that was also very transformative. And I've been doing the, the, both those practices for the last few decades and uh, have the good fortune of seeing how it does transform. But, it, you know, it's also, sl- it's also slow. It takes a while. So, some, some shifts can be quick, like this woman in the class. And then some shifts require uh, deep uh, sowing of seeds. So your practice here is like gardening, where you're cultivating the soil of the mind, of the heart. Yeah? And maybe your, your garden has been neglected and untended for a while, or a few decades, and it's full of weeds and brambles, and it's it's not clear, it's confused. And so we come here to learn, to to, to shine the light of awareness on ourselves, on our lives. Excuse me, I just have to change this mic. So, sometimes we accept things as they are with mindfulness, and sometimes we see what we can do to change them, <laughs> including microphones <laughs> that are by nature unsatisfactory when they're wrapped around your ear. So, when the Buddha was practicing and teaching. Um, <clears throat> The, the practices were, he was mostly learning were around concentration and asceticism, and there was also some devotional practices. And he, in his own way, developed this practice of mindful awareness, this, the, the close, careful observation and study of the mind and body and the laws that govern this world to understand the human predicament, to understand why it is that we are in anguish, and why it is we don't feel unbound, why we don't feel free, why we don't feel peaceful. I remember once uh, this Indian teacher came to town, uh, was at my friend's house with a private gathering, and there was about 50 people in the room, and he said, how many people have had could say they've had unbroken peace for 24 hours. Right? Which is not asking too much. 24 hours is you know, it's a day, it's workable. Where there was no moment of grief or anguish or despair or judgment or you know, neg- states where we, we fall into some negativity. There was not a crowd of hands that raised <laughs> their arms. Not a crowd of people, sorry, that raised their hands. So we want to pay attention, well why is that? Here we are at Spirit Rock. I could ask the same question today. How many people today have had an unbroken experience of peace and ease? Right? not a lot of, well, there's a one hand there, good for you, a two, uh, there's a few hands going up. Do I, do I hear two, do I hear three, do I other? <laughs> right, but it's pretty rare. And if we sat here for a week though, those hands would probably change. <laughs> So why is that? You know, we're in this beautiful place, beautiful community, beautiful food and land and peaceful environment. What interferes with our natural peace and ease? Clearly something. We have a 100 people here and it's barely a hand goes up saying that's not so present for me. That's what these teachings are pointing to, to understand. What is it that gets in the way of our well-being. So that's what propelled the Buddha to go seeking, go seeking from his his, his somewhat luxurious life as a prince to to a, a spiritual seeker like we are, a wanderer, a homeless person, a homeless uh, ascetic. And fortunately for us, he, he came up with some answers. through the practice of mindfulness, through the practice of investigation. So Humpty Dumpty one day goes into the therapist's office and uh, the therapist says, you know Humpty, we've been working for a while and we now have to get you to the place where you can put yourself back together again. So that is what the Buddha's teaching is about, (laughs) how we put ourselves together again, or maybe how to see that we were never really broken. So the Buddha gave some interesting similes for mindfulness, which I think give a little uh, flesh out uh, perspectives on how we understand mindfulness. So one of the, the images he used, the similes uh, he used, were, was that of a cow herder. So for those of you who go uh, to India or a country where there's, um, the cows roam somewhat freely, um, the image of a cow herder, he said, it's like a cow herder who's sitting with their back against a tree in the shade uh, watching carefully, but in a relaxed way, the cows, so they don't stray into the neighboring farmer's uh, crops. So what's interesting about that image is the cow herder is not doing this over his cows. He's sitting back against a tree in the shade with a wide view, right? So this is one way to practice mindfulness. We're relaxed, we're open, we're present, we're not like a cat over the mouse hole, gotta catch that breath, and then the next one. And I've got seventeen more to go. No. Just oh. Present, breath arises and is known, sounds arise and then known. So one way of practicing mindfulness. Another he said is like the watchtower. So you have a tall tower, somebody's watching and pervades the, the the landscape below. Right, so it's a kind of a global awareness. Another um, metaphor is the uh, metaphor of the gatekeeper. So in olden days, there was a gatekeeper, and in walled cities, there was a gatekeeper who would, who would uh, pay attention to who was coming and going out of the town. So mindfulness is, 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 is known to be a guard for the for the it's a like guard to the gates of the mind. So it supports wholesome, skillful states of mind and makes it harder for unwholesome, unskillful, painful states of mind to enter. He also gave the analogy that it's like a surgeon's probe. Surgeon's probe is very fine, very precise, and sometimes when we're paying attention to our body or our breath or an experience, there's a very, very fine, detailed, careful, precise attention. So what we're seeing here is is there's there's a range in awareness that can be very global and very microscopic and specific. And as we, as we learn some dexterity in our practice, we can learn how to move in and out of what's appropriate. So, uh, there's a lovely phrase in Zen, uh, uh, that, I, f- I forget exactly what the question is, but I think it's some teacher said, what's the def- what was asked, what's the def- definition of enlightenment? And he said, it's an appropriate response. It's an appropriate response to the moment. So mindfulness is an appropriate, it it provides an appropriate response to the moment. One of the beautiful things about mindfulness that I'm hoping that you are tasting and touching, if you you don't know this for yourself already, is that uh, mindfulness, um, or without mindfulness, So much of our life isn't possible without this depth of awareness. But one of the things that we can see here very easily is how it opens our experience to joy, to well-being, to happiness, to gladness, to delight. Because with mindfulness we become more aware, more awake, more present. And when we're in an environment like this, which is beautiful, and the spring is flowering and blossoming and the birds and the frogs and the crickets are. Singing and the food is delicious Yeah, it's it's easy to be open and to touched by beauty and uh, delight Anybody notice anything beautiful here this weekend so far? Yeah, so it was surrounded by beauty Yeah, but as the saying in Vegas goes you have to be present to win We have to be present to appreciate to receive. Yeah, we could walk up and down this hill 20 times this retreat to dining room and back and not see those gorgeous flowering purple fanfares of whatever they are called over there by the uh, residence halls. What are they called? Sienokas. 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 (laughs) is No wonder I don't remember that word. (laughs) (laughs) Or whatever else is on display. This is a poem from Mary Oliver called Mindful. Wonderful nature, mindfulness poet. Every day I see or hear something that more or less kills me with delight, that leaves me like a needle in the haystack of light. It was what I was born for, to look, to listen, to lose myself inside this soft world, to instruct myself over and over in joy and acclamation. Nor am I talking about the exceptional, the fearful, the dreadful, the very extravagant, but of the ordinary, the common, and the drab, and the daily presentations. O good scholar, I say to myself, how can you help but grow wise with such teachings as these, the untrimmable light of the world, the ocean's shine, the prayers that are made out of grass? So I think when, we, when we're residing with a mindful presence, we move in the world with more reverence, with more reverence for, for what's here, for the beauty in each one of us here, for the life that grows, for, and, and so a, a sense of appreciation and wonder. I just came back, I was teaching a meditation course down in Baja, Mexico, I uh, do these nature retreats, as I mentioned, and we were out kayaking in these islands for a week, away from everything, away from the grid, away from emails, away from, we were just there with the elements sun, sky, sea, and a lot of marine life, dolphins, and whales, and bird life, and the the whole group kept erupting in these sort of clouds of joy, and laughter, and delight, and. Uh, Because it, you know, why not? When you're present and quiet, the receptive mind opens with this beautiful capacity to appreciate, to fall in love with life, with nature, with the earth. So as I said yesterday, this practice is, the practice of mindfulness is a support for insight, for clarity, for knowing, for understanding ourselves. And hopefully, as the days go on, you're, you're beginning to, to see different things in your experience that will uh, support your understanding, support insight. One of the things that we notice uh, in the beginning of, a, uh, when, we, when we enter a period of retreat, is uh, how much we're lost in our heads. Has that been a surprise to anybody, how, lost you, how much you're lost in your mind? Like how much you think? I mean, isn't it amazing how much we think? Like most of the time. Like there's rare moments of space, right? And then, you know, the breath, you know, well, good luck. <laughs> you know, maybe you catch one or two or some. Um, but a lot of the time we're just spaced out, like in the dining room. I notice when, I, when I'm in retreat and I'm in the dining room, I think a lot because I, th- I guess I think a lot when I'm at home eating, you know? So we carry on the habits of our life. We see the habits of our life. And one of the main habits we have is we're entranced and addicted and obsessed and in love with thinking. Buddha Dasa, this great Thai meditation master, said we're lost in thought. That's how he describes his Western students, three words, lost in thought. Yeah. So when we're lost in thought, we're, we're not really uh, dwelling uh, so cognizantly in the present. Life goes by. So when I mentioned that study yesterday from Harvard about being in, uh, daydreaming 46.9% of the day, what I forgot to mention, the most important piece of that study, was they were asked how they felt after they daydreamed. So they were asked to chronicle their their experience as they came back from a daydream. And consistently people felt less happy than, than, when, than when before they were daydreaming. And you'd think, that doesn't make sense, daydreaming, you know, you fantasize about Hawaii or, you know, whatever... But because they daydreamed and then came back to the present moment, the present moment didn't show up so good compared to Hawaii, or in the pizza, or wherever they were. You know, you come back to the cubicle, it's like, oh, it's just not the beach. So it actually made them feel less happy. And the other study that I mentioned about thoughts, that we think, you know, 60, 90,000 thoughts a day, something like that. I'm not sure who's counting, but it's a lot. Ninety percent of them or more, we thought yesterday. Right? <laughs> so, you think you're having all these wonderful, brilliant and original thoughts. No, it's just, they're repeats. <laughs> We're watching repeats, <laughs> again and again and again. And if you really pay attention, you'll see, it's the same old stuff you're worrying about money, fantasizing about sex, thinking about your job, what about redecorating the bathroom, or you know whatever your top 10 are, you know I should be better I should be I should be somewhere different in my life than I am. That's always a really great one, you know. This shouldn't be happening. Well, great. <laughs> it is. I should be over that by now. Well, I'm not. I should be further along in my spiritual practice. Hello, I'm here. And we get to see that the thoughts are kind of bizarre. And we, we, they, we, they land and we take them so seriously. And then we, we have great suffering around our thoughts. And the Buddha said, you know, the, the, the mind, uh, nothing, nothing can cause us so much harm than, a, than an untrained mind. And nothing can cause us so much well-being than a trained mind. So this is what we're doing here. We're training the mind to uh, unhook from its patterns of, of torture, really, it's often what it is. Not to dismiss that the mind is also a brilliant, wonderful, creative, imaginative, uh, just uh, profound piece of evolutionary biology. And... We, as uh, West Niska says, we've lost the operating manual and we can't find the off switch. So not only do we think a lot, but we see all the different ways that we vacate the moment, yeah? All the different ways you numb out, space out, distract yourselves. I and mean, there's not a huge amount of things to distract yourself here compared to your life, right? You don't have internet and TV and music and. Right? But you still find plenty of ways. How many times have you read the notice board out there? <laughs> and read the back of the toilet wrapper and anything you can get your hands on to just get you out of being present? Because, God, it's. You know. You read the you know the, the the Spirit Rock instruction sheet in your bedroom. <laughs> wow, never knew it was so interesting. You fold the blankets that way, and <sighs> what's going on? Like, pay attention. What what when you want to read that list again? What what's happening? Yeah, wh- why is that so interesting? Than just being present to yourself. Yeah, you know? something's going on. Right? It's hard to be here with this. Okay, so wh- why is that hard? Pay, pay attention. Without judgment, just like, oh, what's the habit of mind? Is it a habit? Is it coming out of fear? Is it coming out of boredom? Is it coming out of greed? Coming out of distraction? So one of the things that we encounter um, on a retreat is really just what I was speaking to, which is uh, the different things in our life, in our conditioning, in our mind, that make it difficult to be present. And the Buddha categorized some of these obstacles in in, in different ways. So I want to name some of them to speak to your experience so to help, again, sort of normalize what's going on. Because often we come to a retreat and we're sitting meditating and it's it is what it is it's the ups and the downs and the challenges and we think I must be the only one who who is having a hard time following their breath I must be the only one who's wondering what we're doing when we're doing this sort of zombie like walking what what the point of this is and the only one who's not really quite getting the point of this practice and everybody else is just like close to nirvana One breath away. (laughs) And I'm like, you know, back at work or somewhere. But as you, if if we had, you know, if we shared our experience, you'll see that actually we're all in the same boat. We have the same busy mind, same distractibility, same tensions and fears and worries. Not the same, but similar tendencies. So I'm going to, I'm going to, speak to some of those tendencies. You know, the Buddha said, as I said yesterday, uh, the, the nature of the mind is pure and radiant and is and is obscured by visiting tendencies of mind. So what are these tendencies of mind that take us away from presence, from our true nature, from, from being at peace? So on the first one that, I, as I mentioned already, that we can often encounter is the... Uh, what's called the hindrance of doubt, self-doubt, doubting the practice, doubting ourselves, doubting the teachers, doubting our choice to be here, doubting our ability to be, to be able to meditate, doubting our ability to concentrate. So the Zen cartoon that I like. It it's, um, has a picture of a bunch of Zen monks uh, in, in a meditation hall and everyone's looking really Mindful, except one guy who's on his cell phone <laughs> and saying, none of this seems to be doing me any good whatsoever. <laughs> Maybe that would be texting now. None of this is doing me any good whatsoever. What am I doing here? <coughs> texting the person who said, oh, Spirit is a really good place. Check it out. What do you mean is it's a good place? <laughs> So it's useful to pay attention to this mind because it masquerades as wisdom. It masquerades as, you know, it's six in the morning, you hear the bell, and it's, and the, the thought comes, you know, you're really tired. They said you really go to listen to your body and take care of yourself. you just skip the meditation. <laughs> just lie in, it'd be really good. You know, it's lots of self-meta, it's really, you know. <laughs> Or it comes as, um, mm, Hmm. It comes as you know. I heard that they, the 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 Tibetan path is much quicker than the one at Spirit Rock. <laughs> they say it's like the diamond vehicle. It's really they just get straight to the you know enlightenment in one lifetime. I hear you know that I, maybe I should have gone. There's a place down in Berkeley that I, you know. And so we start, we start, what happens is doubt makes us pull back from experience, pull back from our, from our practice. And so we disengage and then, then, then whatever we're paying attention to, like the breath sort of fades, we get sort of foggy and dull, we get bored, we get distracted and then it actually becomes self-fulfilling. The practice stops working, the doubt becomes self-fulfilling, we get more bored and disengaged and then we find ourselves... You know, off who knows where. You know, grabbing for our car keys. So to notice, the, notice this voice and go, oh, doubt. Oh, hello, doubt. Probably isn't the only place that it appears in your life, right? I wouldn't be surprised. Or it comes up in your relationships or at work or your performance in who knows what you do. It's a musician. Yeah. So notice that voice. Oh, doubt. I see you. Thank you. Let me just get back to the practice. So the the two most common tendencies of mind that the Buddha spoke to a lot, that's also in this, this understanding of uh, obstacles to practice, are the forces of, let me ask you, what do you think they are? What are the two Two most common sort of global tendencies that pull you away from just simply being at ease in the moment greed, greed. Fear. 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 Desire. fear, desire, tiredness. tiredness. <laughs> <laughs> greed, fear, tiredness. Past and okay, past and future. So we're on the right track. So, um, so, yes, yeah, so the first is the force of desire, sense desire, but really any kind of desire that takes you out of the present moment into a belief and a, and a story, uh, a longing for something other than what's here. Yeah? Something better, we think, than this experience. So... Uh, one of my colleagues tells this story of when he, was te- when he was working at IMS, which is the sister center in, in Barry, Massachusetts. And he was, uh, his room was above the kitchen. This is a long time ago. And he had this, this ruckus in the kitchen about three in the morning, which was not usual in the retreat center. And so he goes down to find out what's going on and there's a, there's a whole bunch of yogis uh, meditators in the kitchen Cooking and making food, <laughs> the chocolates out, and and he goes into the and, and the, the, the the walk-in fridge is open, and there's a guy, in there and then he's got his hand in a big box of dates, and my friend says, uh, "Can I help you?" And the man says, "I'm looking for the maintenance department." <laughs> <laughs> so um, that happens, you know. the 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 causes and conditions of. Being here, being with ourselves, not liking it, wanting some entertainment, some distraction, some sensory pleasure because we're used to sensory pleasure, so the mind goes looking for it. You know? So it could be in food, could be in many things. So, but but what I'm, I'm more pointing to the the the, ten, the general tendency, which is to lean outside of ourselves, in hope of pers- in pursuit of something that we think's gonna do it. And we spend our lives toppling forward out of ourselves looking for the thing that's gonna do it. Yeah? Whatever the do it is gonna be for you. It's a natural tendency. You know, In a way, it's biologically evolutionary, driven from the desire for safety, for to be well-nourished, etc., for for company, for companionship. But it drives our lives, and it drives, and we see it in the meditation, you know, in, in, in the minutia of, oh, I wish my breath was a little longer, a little more smooth, like it was yesterday after yoga. Mm. I wish, I, if I would brought that nice pashmina shawl, that I see all these people wearing, I know I'd be much more comfortable, and I'd <laughs> really get in the zone. And if they just served. Cappuccino in the morning. I really, that that really helps my meditation practice. (laughs) If only I can get a steak, you know, because I feel really hungry. They they ran out of whatever they ran out of, and I just want a steak, you know. I'm just how come they don't serve? I'm going to set up a center that serves steak and cappuccino, and it's going to be really popular. (laughs) And call it the Happiness Meditation Center, <laughs> and I give everybody what they want and give a massage, and be, <laughs> and then we then we go on this trip, right? We go on this long story of this idyllic retreat center that we're going to set up, and it can t- you know half an hour goes, and the silk sheets on the bed, and it's all plush and. You know, and then the bell goes and it's, oh yeah, right, spirit rock. <laughs> God, this retreat sucks. <laughs> this med- this meditation really hard. I'm going to go get a cup of tea. <laughs> How come there's no cookies at tea? God. <laughs> so we, we, we just keep leaning outside of ourselves. So the common form of this on retreat is what we call the Vipassana Romance. Where we, um, you know, are having a hard time, or we're bored, or we're restless, or we're just we're just wanting some entertainment, yeah, something to cook up a little spice because the because the day's a little boring. So um, so we start noticing people, you know, we start oh, maybe notice somebody's you know it's cute and someone's attractive, and um, we start sort of following them around a little bit, you know, or we try and sit, you know, in the dining room we can see them, you know, or we. You know, we notice that our shoes, are, you know, we literally go outside and put our sho- and I notice our shoes are together, and that must mean something. <laughs> uh-huh. Maybe they've noticed me, and they want to, you know, you know, and so we start running these stories, these, these desire stories, you know, we meeting up after the retreat, and getting married, and having kids, and, you know, this great, beautiful life you create together, and fantasy land. <laughs> so notice this movement of mind to the wanting mind. Notice how it feels in the body. Notice how it robs you of, as my, one of my teachers in India used to say, uh, uh, desire for the transient is the thief of peace. Desire for the transient is the thief of peace. So all these things are transient. You know, we can have the best cappuccino and the best pizza and the best sex and the best retreat center. And it's transient, right? It doesn't last. That's what the Buddha said. None of this stuff lasts. Everything's changing. Stop holding to things that, that are ungraspable. Enjoy them as they come and let them Go. So so these hindrances of mind are not hindrances if if they're seen in awareness. If we see the doubting mind, it's just another bunch of thoughts. If we see the movement of desire, it's just that, it's just longing, it's just passion, it's just desire. We feel it in the body as a sensation, as a feeling, as thoughts, it's a wave like all these other waves, these storms, they come, and it passes, it passes into cessation. If we don't do anything about it, it passes into cessation. And when it passes into cessation, there's a moment of peace. And that's a lot of what we do in our practice. We sit in the, in the eye of the storm with mindfulness and equanimity and clarity, and we see life unfold. And the more we abide in awareness, the, more, the less we're gripped by the contents of our consciousness. And there's more peace, there's more freedom, there's more space, there's more choice. Because there's more space, because we're less entangled, there's space and therefore there's more choice. Oh, do I want to go down that story of that fantasy about that person again because I just spent the last meditation doing that? Oh no, that's really just more longing. Desire creates more desire. What if I just sit here and be present? Oh, it feels much more peaceful. I feel much more whole. I feel much more complete than thinking I need to need this experience, this person, this thing to be whole. Just so you learn from my mistakes, I was on a retreat once, and I uh, I was having a really difficult retreat and I went I took a hike three miles it was in Wales in and, and a rainy night, like it was this morning, down three miles down a country lane to the nearest store. My roommate was sick I thought great i 'll go get him some cold medicine, and I can get some chocolate great So I hiked three miles in a pouring rain like wild horizontal rain, Get to the store. It was open I loaded up with chocolate and stuff, and completely forgot about his medicine walk three miles back, <laughs> walk into the room, say, ah, i like some chocolate. It's really good for colds. It felt terrible. He took it, he, he took it in a great spirit and drew this picture of me with this, uh, me in, this, in, this, in this, the sweet shop with all these bulging pockets of chocolate and the woman behind the counter surrounded by all this cold medicine. I'm going, oh, yes, another chocolate down there would be lovely. Thank you. <laughs> so that's what desire is like. It, 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 we have tunnel vision. So the flip side of that is aversion, resistance, not liking. So the grasping arises in relationship to the pleasant. We're addicted to the pleasant, and we're addicted to avoiding the unpleasant. And there's a lot of unpleasantness in life, as you noticed, in inside, outside, when things are unpleasant, whether it's in our knees, in our back, in our mind, in our bodies, in the room, in the food, in the world, in our relationships, we experience uh, either some recoiling, fear, uh, avoidance, rege- uh, re- um, it's either a withdrawing experience, like fear, or, it, or it's, an, uh, it's an attacking experience, aversion, hatred, rage, rejection, uh, etc., So sort of these two movements to to negative, unpleasant experience. So you want to notice this and to see how gripped equally we are in this experience. So maybe you're sitting quietly and you notice somebody's breathing loudly or somebody's coughing or sniffling a lot, somebody's moving a lot next to you. Are you profoundly at peace and equanimity and loving that person for their movement or do you want to kill them? You know, I've, said, I've, been on, I've been on a three-month retreat where the person next to me, he was sitting over here, I can see him right now, it's 20 years ago, but I can see him right now. He was the loudest breather I've ever heard. <laughs> and it was a three-month retreat, so it was a long haul. <laughs> yeah, I wanted to kill him a few times, that's, you know, natural. I didn't. <laughs> the precept, not harming any living being. So to notice how, and, you know, and of course things get exaggerated on retreat because there's not much going on. So someone breathing or somebody's rustly clothes or, um, you know, the sound of the frog, whatever it is, it could be, you know, the, the tofu that they serve, who knows, can, can set the mind off. And we get into this storm. It's like, how come they, why don't they, na 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 and, and they're just, they're just happily breathing, meditating, having a great time. And you're the one who's like, it's just embroiled in this misery, like, ugh. right? Pay attention when you're in that place. It's a very insightful place to practice. So normally we think, oh, I'm in this place, oh, I, and then we, then judgment comes in. Oh, I shouldn't be feeling, I'm on, I'm at Spirit Rock, I should be all holy and peaceful and la dee da No, feel that strength of that, that painful place. Because right? this is your life. It doesn't just happen on the cushion, right? When you're in traffic, when you're in a difficult argument, when someone lets you down, when, you know, there's a long list of things that trigger us the weather, the economy, politics. Try watching a primary debate, for God's sake. You know, talk about triggering. Um, and that could be either primary. Um, So pay attention when this uh, this state of aversion or hatred or resistance, right? Feel how the body feels, tight, solar plexus, throat, chest, breathing tight, contraction. This is suffering, the Buddha said, there is suffering in life. First noble truth. This is a great way to see, all these things I'm pointing to are aspects of the unsatisfactory, painful, Uh, states that we create called suffering. So we practice, we cultivate awareness to be more clear about the things that cause suffering. So the next time you experience something unpleasant, which will probably be, could be right now actually, (laughs) could be this talk is going on too long. (laughs) Maybe because you're tired, maybe your body's aching because you've sat in this weird posture all day. If that's present right now, great, okay. So you welcome it, just like uh, I was exploring today in, in, the, in the group, uh, you welcome whatever, whatever experience is here. So if you're experiencing unpleasantness, so just right now, let's look, is there, is there any unpleasantness in your experience? Maybe there is, maybe there isn't. Our experience is either pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. If it's pleasant, we hold on. If it's unpleasant, we react, reversion. If it's neutral, we, Have a neutral, checked out response. So if it's unpleasant, notice if there's any resistance, contraction, reactivity to that. Can you hold that in your awareness? Oh, aversion is like this. Resistance is like this. When it's embraced with mindfulness, none of it's a problem because we're not going to be acting out from it because there's enough clarity and awareness. I was once teaching in San Quentin and I heard this story of a man who was out in the um, uh, the uh, yard, thank you, and uh, um, I I think it was a yard, but anyway, somebody took his coffee, uh, which was like a big no-no, and uh, he knew who it was. And they were out on some landscaping project, and he said he was like that close to you know striking the guy's head with a shovel um because he was mad that someone had you know just taken violated in a certain way and he said it was the practice of mindfulness that stopped him he could see the hatred he could see the acting out and he could see the suffering that would ensue and he stopped yeah so mindfulness can arise in any moment to intercept these very powerful forces of reactivity and can save tremendous amount of suffering. Look what happens in road rage. Road rage is when 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 someone something happens fear usually gets triggered on top of the fear becomes anger and rage and acting out. Without mindfulness, it's an unstoppable train. So um, we have the tendencies of doubting mind, desiring mind, aversive mind. And the last two, just quickly, are um, uh, more physical states of restlessness and sloth. So sloth and torpor. I was in Costa Rica not so long ago and I got to see sloths live, you know, hanging on the tree. (laughs) that was like a three-hour segment right there. <laughs> they're wonderful. It's a good life. And one hour a day, they crawl down the tree, they pick a few grubs or whatever they eat, and go back up. We used to have sloths in, the, in Northern America, North America. And you can see why they didn't last long, because they're pretty easy to hunt. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So that's also arises in meditation, as many of you have been feeling you know the nodding mind sloth is 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 really the 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 um, the resistance to wanting to show up and apply energy to practice and be present yeah and it's just much more comfortable to feel really cozy and warm and fuzzy and <laughs> with with some delusion that I really am mindful. I'm just soft. <laughs> I'm fuzzy. <laughs> so notice that. Notice it's the same when you're lying in bed and say, like, you know, "I want to get up. Mm, I really need my sleep." That's the function of sloth to inhibit energy in pursuit of practice. So we wanna notice that and invigorate and apply energy and wake ourselves up. Let's do the standing meditation that Martina guided us on. Of course, the natural waves of, of tiredness, which, which are slightly different than sloth, they're just waves of energy, they come and they go. The sloth is really the the inertia to want to wake up, and again to see that as it happens. One of the practices they say that's useful for working with sloth is to reflect on impermanence, to reflect on death. I've had a lot of people recently in my life pass away. And, 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 and just to feel the, the precariousness of life, yeah? We just don't know, we just don't know. This might be a first retreat, it might be a last retreat, we have no idea. Like, you know, we think, oh, you know, well, I'll do, you know, when I retire, I'll do all this practice, and you know, next year I'll do this really long retreat, and who knows? You know, here we are right now, take advantage of this time and practice. And the last uh, hindrance is, is the hindrance of restlessness, agitation and worry, which is the, the, the mind disturbed like when, it, when a, the wind whips up a pond and it's all cloudy and agitated, or the sea and the body's all physically discomfort, uncomfortable and agitated, you know, the feeling that you wanna run out of the hole it's because you've got so much energy so much m- stuff running through your mind usually triggered by the mind of regret or of worry about the future so notice the cause for the for these states all of these things have a cause and nothing arises out nothing arises without cause and conditions so notice when you're restless and agitated you may at some point reflect oh, what's causing this Oh, yeah, I was thinking about that thing I said to my friend before I came on retreat that was really mean. And I feel really just kind of uncomfortable. I feel guilty and a little shame that I said that. You know, or we're worrying about, you know, work on Monday morning and what's going to happen, and I didn't get to that deadline, and da 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 da. And there's just some, we're whipped up in a certain way. So we need to bring balance, we need to bring peace, we need to bring calm to the system. So without mindfulness, we can't see where we are, and we can't see what antidotes are necessary to be applied. Yeah. Without mindfulness, we can't see what's happening and how we're reacting to it. Yeah. So the key point in this practice, or one of the key points in this practice, is to not just notice what's happening, notice the breath, notice the boredom, notice the reactivity, to notice how you're relating to it. So when you start feeling the chronic pain in the shoulders or in the knees, how what's the attitude? What are you bringing to that? Are you creating more suffering by judging yourself? For being a bad meditator For having pain or whatever Or is there kindness is there? Oh, maybe I should move maybe I need to Not sit like this because it's really unnecessary. <laughs> and that's just a good habit that I've got from work Ah, <laughs> oh, yeah, that feels good This is a line from Rumi. It applies to the hindrance of aversion and fear, but it really applies to all the hindrances. He says, fear is the cheapest room in the house. I'd like to see you living in better living conditions. So, desire, aversion, restlessness, sleepiness, doubt. Are the cheapest rooms in the house. I'd like to see you in better living conditions. I'd like to see you living in peace and happiness and joy and freedom and ease. Right? But the doorway to those more beautiful states are by meeting those hindrances as they are. They are the practice in that moment. If you're full filled with lust in a certain moment, that in itself is the meditation. Not, oh, it's getting in the way so I can get it out the way so I can get back to my breath. No, that we're meeting that as it is. Oh, lust feels like this. Oh, sadness feels like this. Boredom feels like this. When boredom comes, get excited. You don't have to get excited, but I get excited because, oh, boredom, oh, what's boredom? Let's do, how come boredom arose? this amazing thing called life and suddenly I'm bored? What happened? Something happened for boredom to arise. So many, many, many more things to say about practice. Um, I got through about a 10th of what I'd planned to say tonight, but that doesn't matter. What matters is I really admire and respect and bow to your efforts and your practice, because it's not easy to be here, right? It's not easy to show up from six in the morning till now eight o'clock at night and be present, to apply effort, to pay attention, to let go of the fascination with thought, to be kind to yourself, to be aware as in, in physical activities, yeah? Going against, as the Buddha said, this is, this is going against the stream. This practice goes against the stream of ordinary conditioned life. Yeah? We're going against the instinctual impulses of our conditioning, to just go after every experience and hate everything that you don't like. No, to be sit in the middle of it with presence and awareness and dignity and kindness is a very radical act. And one that will uh, provide seeds for your uh, well-being and happiness uh, now and to come. So let's sit for a few moments. So meeting yourself, meeting your experience, just as it is, what's here right now as you sit, can you meet your experience with a kind attention? And notice what's interfering, if anything, with you simply being at ease in this moment. if there is something, can you meet that? Can you name it? Oh, yeah, there's resistance. Oh, there's fear. Oh, there's tiredness. Oh, tiredness is like this. Everything can be embraced with this beautiful quality of presence.